You're listening to audio from Stapleton Baptist Church. If you would like to check out more resources or donate to this ministry, please visit stapletonbaptistchurch.org. We pray this message blesses you. I invite you to turn in your Bibles to Genesis 14. If you don't have a Bible with you today, you can find one of these black pew Bibles right in front of where you're sitting. And if you're reading from the pew Bible, you can find it on page 9. Be helpful to follow along in a Bible as we make our way through this story that takes up quite a few verses. This morning we are moving into Genesis chapter 14, and I want to remind you that we're in the chapter or overall section of Genesis that's primarily focused on Abraham or Abram as he's still known in these early chapters. And over the next few weeks, we'll get to know Abram very well. In earlier parts of Genesis, we were introduced to people like Adam and Eve. There were Cain and Abel, Seth, Enoch, Noah, Shem, Ham, Japheth, all very important people in redemptive history. Some of them played vital roles in the story of God, yet in reality, we know very little about them. Some of them show up for just one chapter or like Enoch for just a couple verses, Their profile information is very limited, but things change once we get to Genesis 12. The book slows down, in a sense, and focuses in on only four generations of one family, and it describes their life and the faith of these people, these patriarchs, in much greater detail for us. And so we get a better uh, profile and picture of who these people were, and that's certainly the case with Abraham. He's the primary focus of the book of Genesis from chapter 12 all the way to chapter 25. In a way, he might be the most important person in the book of Genesis. And as we saw last week, it's not just 12 chapters about how awesome Abraham is. Instead, the Bible shows us a man who is, in in a very real way, wrestling with his faith. He has moments of incredible obedience He also has moments of incredible disobedience. If you could chart out Abraham's faith, it would look a lot like the stock chart with peaks and valleys. Uh, There's highs and lows. There's taking two steps forward, one step back. That very much describes Abraham's life. But over time, we will see that chart trending in the right direction. Abraham's spiritual maturity will be hard won. It won't come immediately, it won't come naturally, but all along we'll continue to see God showing himself faithful to his promises to Abraham. And it's always an encouragement to myself when I consider Abraham's life. He's one of the most important people in the whole story of the Bible. Even for us today, uh, New Testament Christians, uh, the New Testament would classify us as children of Abraham. Because we're beneficiaries of the promises that God made to him. Abraham's incredibly important, but he was far from perfect. Yet God still used him in incredible ways. Abraham was certainly a work in progress, but God kept working with him and molding him and shaping him into who he needed him to be and to use him. And that gives me hope that God is still molding me and will shape me as well. 
Now, I don't expect God to give me any specific history-changing promises that, like he did with Abram, but I do fully expect that as I pursue Christ daily, that God will be faithful to continue forming me into the image of his Son, that he'll help me, for the sake of his kingdom, become a better follower of Christ and use me in whatever way he sees fit. And like Abram, over time I pray my spiritual maturity, my Spiritual effectiveness will be trending upward. And thankfully today we get to explore a positive story of Abram. When we left off last week, it was not a bright spot for for Abram, but today it will be. And not only that, but we're also introduced to this mysterious person, Melchizedek. And so we can divide this story into three parts in order to understand it. We have the conflict, we have the resolution, And then we have the celebration, the conflict, the resolution, and the celebration. First, we find the conflict explained in Genesis 14, 1 through 12. So if you look at verse 1 with me, it says, In the days of Amraphel, king of Shinar, Arioch, king of Elisar, Ketelaomer, king of Elam, and Tidal, king of Goim, these kings made war with Bera, king of Sodom, Bersha, king of Gomorrah, Shinab, king of Adma, Shemeber, king of Zeboim, and, king, and the king of Bela, that is Zoar. And all these joined forces in the valley of Sedim, that is the Salt Sea. Twelve years they served Ketolaomer, but in the thirteenth year they rebelled. In the fourteenth year, Ketolaomer and the kings who were with him came and defeated the Rephaim in Ashtaroth Kirnaim, and the Zuzim in Ham, and the Emim in Shava. Kiriathiam, and the Horites in their hill country of Seir, as far as El Paran, on the border of the wilderness. Then they turned back and came to En Mishpat, that is Kadesh, and defeated all the country of the Amalekites, and also the Amorites who were dwelling in Hazanzan Tamar. Then the king of Sodom, the king of Gomorrah, the king of Adma, the king of Zeboim, and the king of Bela, that is Zoar, went out, and they joined battle in the valley of Sedim with Ketolaomer, king of Elam. Tidal, king of Goim, Amraphel, king of Shinar, and Arioch, king of Elisar, four kings against five. Now the valley of Sidim was full of bitumen pits, and as the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah fled, some fell into them, and the rest fled to the hill country. So the enemy took all the possessions of Sodom and Gomorrah and all their provisions and went their way. They also took Lot, the son of Abram's brother, who was dwelling in Sodom and his possessions and went their way. So at first glance, this passage may just seem like an alphabet soup of difficult names of people and places. Uh, That was harder than the genealogies that we've read so far. And it may seem real random. We've been reading about Abram and what God is doing with him. And now all of a sudden, we're thrown into this story of this rebellion and clash of kings. And at first, you may wonder, what does this have to do with Abram? This seems a little bit out of place. But we'll try to summarize it. And by the way, when it says king, these probably aren't kings like we would imagine today. Maybe you think of uh, the days of imperialism, the king of England, king of Spain, king of France, and these massive forces and empires that they commanded. But these ancient kings we're reading about were nothing like that. They, They did not have empires at this point. These are mainly cities. They had a city 
as a king. That's why it's Bera, king of Sodom. Sodom wasn't an empire. It was a city surrounded by land. So even though they're nothing like modern kings or kings we'll see later in Scripture, they are still the most powerful people during that time and place. And when assembled, probably had a formidable force. So here's what happens. For 12 years, a decent number of these smaller kingdoms had served or paid homage to Ketileomer. We can assume he was the most powerful in the region. But then these kings finally say, enough is enough, and they rebel. In response, Ketileomer takes his remaining allies on this war path, just uh, subduing this uprising. And it all culminates with this big showdown in the Valley of Sedim. On one side, you have Ketileomer and three other kings. Then on the other side, you have the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah and three others. So four kings versus five. This is a pretty big clash. But it's the four kings that win, and in their victory, they seize all the possessions and provisions of the people of Sodom and Gomorrah and take them away. Throughout history, that has been the traditional way that, that the, victor, uh, the victories went. The victor had the right to the spoils of war, including things and people. The victor took whatever and whoever they wanted. Then it's not until verse 12 that we finally find out why this story is recorded here. Because remember, who looked out at the Jordan Valley and liked what they saw and decided to live there among the wicked cities, it was none other than Abram's nephew, Lot. And now, because he chose to live among these wicked cities and apparently was actually living in Sodom, He's a part of this whole mess, and Lot and all of his possessions get taken by these kings. And that's what brings us from the, the conflict to then the resolution in verse 13. So pick up with me in verse 13. It says, Then one who had escaped came and told Abram the Hebrew, who was living by the oaks of Mamre, the Amorite, brother of Eschol and Aner, these were allies of Abram. When Abram heard that his kinsmen had been taken captive, he led forth his trained men, born in his house, 318 of them, and went in pursuit as far as Dan. And he divided his forces against them by night, he and his servants, and defeated them, and pursued them to Hobah, north of Damascus. Then he brought back all the possessions, and also brought back his kinsmen Lot with his possessions, and the women and the people." So it's worth noting that Abram is referred to here as Abram the Hebrew. This is the first time in the Bible that we see that word used, and we understand it to be referring to the descendants of Eber. So we saw that name back in the genealogy of Shem, and that's where the word Hebrew comes from. And it's another reminder that even though God has brought Abram into the land of Canaan, he is still seen as a foreigner and sojourner there. He's not a Canaanite, he is a Hebrew. So we see now that Lot's decision to live among the cities of the valley has entangled Abram in this situation as well. And this passage really paints a different picture of Abram than what we usually probably assume of him. Here he's seen as a brave warrior going to battle to rescue his kinsmen. It's an honorable and brave thing that he does. We also get a glimpse at how wealthy and even powerful Abram has become. We were already told in the last chapter that Abram and Lot had to separate because both of their possessions and livestock had grown so great that the land couldn't sustain both of them. So they had to find different places to settle. But here we get 
some detail that helps us imagine just how wealthy he really was. It says he gathered 318 trained men who were born in his house. Now notice these are trained men, trained either for battle or for at least protecting Abram's assets. 318 is a sizable number. So Abram's entire operation of livestock, whatever he had going on, had to be pretty big to need that many trained men. But then it says they were all born in his house. So that's all 318 of these trained men were born and raised from other servants or workers already within Abram's household. These aren't outside mercenaries. They were born and raised to people who already worked for Abram. So if you multiply that out, considering that not all men were trained for battle, and also that daughters would have been born as well, it's likely that Abram's entire livestock operation involves several thousand people. And being born in his household meant that these 318 men were as loyal as you could find. And so at this point, we shouldn't picture Abram as some poor old man living in a ragged tent in the desert. Now, he was more nomadic, um, lived, dwelling in tents rather than in the cities, but, uh, but this isn't just a little pop-up tent, probably. He's amassed impressive wealth and power. But should that actually be too surprising? Because what did God promise to Abram? He promised he would make his name great. He promised he would make a nation from him. And we do see that already happening by chapter 14, that God indeed is blessing Abram, that he's growing him slowly into a nation. Later, he'll be growing it by his literal descendants, and he's giving him a name. This is God's promises already at work in his life, especially when you consider that Abram gained many of his assets from the Egyptians and was able to keep it when God afflicted Pharaoh with those plagues like we saw last week. So God is the one blessing and raising up Abram. So Abram gathers his 318 men, and we find out later that apparently his Amorite allies join him too. They divide their forces during the night and attack these four kings, utterly defeating them and bringing back all the possession and plunder that had been taken, including Lot and all his possessions. So this is quite the victory for Abram and his allies, defeating these four kings who had already defeated five other kings. So at this point, the story could have ended. It could have just gone on to chapter 15. We have this conflict, and then we have the resolution. And the story seems like it's over, but we find out it's not. We get the conflict, the resolution, and then we get this celebration. It's this celebration that ends up being the most interesting part of the whole chapter. We now arrive back at verse 17, where Brandon read for us. And let's read it again. It says, After his return from the defeat of Ketolaomer and the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom went out to meet him at the valley of Sheva, that is, the king's valley. And Melchizedek, the king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was priest of God Most High. And he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abraham by God Most High, the possessor of heaven and earth, and blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And Abram gave him a tenth of everything. So try to picture this scene. Abram is traveling back through the land with his militia of 300 men, his allies, all the plunder and people that were recovered from the defeated kings. 
There's no cars or trains or planes during this time. So this huge group is just traveling through the land on foot. And as they make their way through the valley of Sheva, two kings come out to meet Abram. One is the king of Sodom and one is the king of Salem. A pretty striking contrast between those two kings. We've already heard of this king of Sodom in Genesis and heard of how wicked the city is that he rules. But who is this mysterious new person, the Melchizedek, king of Salem? Well, first, his name is worth mentioning. His name is a combination of the Hebrew word Melech, which means king, and Zedek, which means righteousness. So his name literally means king of righteousness. It says he's king of Salem, which means peace, and is almost certainly the ancient name of the city that would become known as Jerusalem. So Moses, the writer, tells us Melchizedek was also priest of God Most High. It's thrown in there in in parentheses, almost just as an aside, uh, but it's significant for several reasons. First, we find out that someone else besides Abram follows the one true God. Sometimes when we're reading through Genesis, we may assume that, that Abram was the only person in the world that followed God. But we find that there's evidence that there were others at that time who did still worship the true God. Job is another example of an ancient person in the Bible uh, who worshiped the true God even though he wasn't a Hebrew. And so there are others. Then second, this is the first mention of a priest in the book of Genesis. Of course, Moses' original readers, they would have had an understanding of what a priest was. But for someone today reading the Bible for the first time, they may come across that word and not understand quite what it means at first. And in the Old Testament understanding, a priest was a necessary intercessor or intermediary between the people and God. They needed someone to speak to God on their behalf, to make sacrifices on their behalf. And they needed someone to speak back to them on God's behalf. And the priest in the Old Testament was someone chosen and authorized by God for that task. Then the third reason it's significant is because this story occurs 500 years before the priesthood was established in the law. So before in the Mosaic law, when it establishes the priest and who could be a priest and what they're supposed to do, here's this guy Melchizedek being called priest of the Most High God. So that's a huge bit of information for us to remember. So this Melchizedek, he comes out with bread and wine to congratulate Abram on his victory. And two things occur that reveal to us the kind of spiritual superiority of Melchizedek. The first is that Melchizedek blesses Abram. And as was always the case, a blessing is given by a superior to an inferior. The greater always blesses the lesser, the elder to the younger. So the blessing always comes from the greater person. And this blessing echoes the promise that God has already made to Abram. It says, blessed be Abram by God most high, possessor of heaven and earth. And it recognizes that God has given Abram this victory. Then the second way it shows Melchizedek is greater is that Abram gives him a tenth of everything. This is an incredible gesture Remember, Abram is returning from this victory with a vast amount of plunder that is rightfully his, but he gives a tenth of everything to this man, Melchizedek. 
It's a strong symbol of his desire to honor him and to affirm his blessing. And it's also the first tithe that we see in the Bible. The word tithe simply means a tenth. We don't know why Abram decided to give him a tenth. We don't know why he chose that number. But it certainly could be foreshadowing of how the Israelites would later give a tithe to support the work of the priests in the tabernacle. So we're given some incredible details about this Melchizedek that almost makes him even more mysterious. He seems to come out of nowhere. He's both a king and a priest. And even though Abram is God's chosen instrument and is the one God is going to bless every family of the earth through, it seems that Melchizedek is so much greater in authority that Abram gives him a tenth of everything. So who is this guy? Well, some people think that this is actually uh, pre-incarnate Jesus. This, this is a Christophany, as they would call it, or a theophany. Uh, I don't think that's the case. I think Melchizedek was a literal, real person. And we find there are two other mentions of him in Scripture that almost make him even more mysterious, though. And these two mentions are spaced out by almost a millennium each. The next time Melchizedek is mentioned will be about 900 years later in a psalm from David. And it's one of the most quoted messianic psalms, Psalm 110. And the psalm is revealed in the New Testament to, uh, to be clearly, prophetically speaking about Jesus. And it says this in Psalm 110.4, The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. That reference to Melchizedek by David makes him even more mysterious. Uh, and that's coming from David, who will be the first Israelite king to sit on the throne in Jerusalem, which was originally the kingdom of Melchizedek. So again, who is it that, or who is this that he would be mentioned 900 years later and that his name would be attached to prophecies of the Messiah? Well, then we jump another thousand years to the New Testament times, to the book of Hebrews. And it's there in Hebrews 5, 9, and 10. It speaks of Jesus saying, And being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him, being designated by God a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. And then if you read Hebrews chapter 7, it's all about the priestly order of Melchizedek. And we don't have time to go through all that this morning. Maybe down the road we'll preach through Hebrews. But I'll summarize it by very generally saying that Hebrews shows us how Melchizedek points us to Christ. Nearly 2,000 years before Jesus would ever come to this earth, Melchizedek is typifying the kind of priest Jesus would be. If you remember back a few weeks ago, we talked about typology uh, and a type is a person, a place, or event in the Old Testament that foreshadows something greater to come in the New Testament. It's these echoes or ripples across Scripture in time. And it takes discerning authors like Moses under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit to identify uh, these, uh, these ripples across Scripture and to, to point out these previews of what God is going to do. And Melchizedek's life foreshadows the kind of priest Jesus will be. And here's how. We know nothing about Melchizedek's lineage. We don't know where he came from. We don't know who his parents were. We don't know when he was born. We don't know 
when he died. Yet God obviously appointed him to be priest. He was chosen and authorized by God, not based on his lineage. But later, under the Mosaic law, who was allowed to be a priest? Only the Levites. Only those who were of the line of Levi could serve in the office of priest. No one else could. So then fast forward to one of the main arguments of the book of Hebrews, that Jesus is our great and perfect high priest. Jesus is the perfect intermediary between, uh, to, to bring us to the throne of God's grace. But by the first century Jew, or a first century Jewish person might object, how can Jesus be our great high priest? He isn't born from the line of Levi. He's clearly from the line of Judah. Everyone knows it. How can he be a priest at all? And the answer is Melchizedek. Melchizedek was a high priest, not based on lineage, but based on God's choosing and God's power. And so it is with Jesus. He isn't our great high priest by virtue of his parents, but by the virtue of his perfect holiness. As Hebrews 7.15 says, This becomes even more evident when another priest arises in the likeness of Melchizedek, who has become a priest not on the basis of a legal requirement concerning bodily descent, but by the power of of an indestructible life. Now, I hope I didn't lose you through all that. I almost lost myself, to be honest. Uh, if I did, go back and read Hebrews chapter 7 multiple times this week, uh, and hopefully it'll stick. It, this, is, this is some deep stuff stretching all across Scripture. But the main takeaway for us in Genesis 14 is that Melchizedek points us to Christ. And he points Abraham to God's blessing and victory. It perpetuates this strong theme in Genesis of God's blessing and God's promise. And Abram responds to this truth by giving him a tenth of all he has. But the story isn't over. Usually we kind of end with Melchizedek. Abraham gives him a tenth and we just move on to the next chapter. But then we get this other encounter from the king of Sodom. So look at verse 21. And the king of Sodom said to Abram, Give me the persons, but take the goods for yourself. But Abram said to the king of Sodom, I have lifted up my hand to the Lord, God most high, possessor of heaven and earth, that I would not take a thread or a sandal strap or anything that is yours, lest you should say I have made Abram rich. I'll take nothing but what the young men have eaten and the share of the men who went with me. Let Aner and Eskol and Mamre take their share. So we have this gracious blessing from Melchizedek that's then followed by this terse offer from the king of Sodom. He makes the offer to Abraham saying, hey, give me back the people and you can take everything else for yourself. Now the king of Sodom isn't really in a bargaining position here. He is the one who was defeated. Uh, he, he doesn't have any ground to, to argue. He's defeated, and Abraham is the one who defeated the one who defeated him. And so Abram is the victor. He has the right to all the spoils. He has the right to all the people. So Abram could have just said, no, I'm just keeping it all. But here we see another high point in Abram's faith. He basically says, I don't want anything from you. I don't even want a thread of a garment. I don't want a strap of a sandal or a flip-flop that belonged to you. I'll take whatever my men have already eaten because you can't get that back. Uh, 
and my allies can have their share, their, their, their own people. But besides that, you can have everything. I don't want a single thing. And what's the reason for his response? Well, hopefully one reason is because Abram doesn't want this association with Sodom, that city that's so famous for its perversion and wickedness. But the reason Abram states is that so no one could say the king of Sodom made Abram rich. And don't mistake that for Abram being arrogant. He just wants the the glory for himself. No, Abram is doing that. So neither the king of Sodom nor anyone else could steal one ounce of glory from God. Abram recognizes that the wealth he has acquired is due to God's blessing. He recognizes that the victory he's won is due to God's blessing. And we know that because in his response to the king of Sodom, he refers to God using the same exact language that Melchizedek did. He calls him Lord, God most high, possessor of heaven and earth, just like we read in verse 19. This is actually a very strong showing of integrity by Abram. It's very strong contrast between this and what happened in Egypt. In this instant, Abram proves himself faithful to God's promises and God's plan. God has promised to bless him and make his name great. And now here, the king of Sodom has given Abram an opportunity to gain more wealth. Abram could have easily looked at all those goods and livestock, whatever the spoils of war were, and thought, hey, that would take my wealth to the next level. But he recognizes that this would be coming from shady sources. It would be coming by means of a deal with a wicked king rather than coming by the means of God's blessing. And Abram remains steadfast in his trust in God. And his example is instructive for us today. How would you rate your integrity when it comes to the promises and plans of God? Would you be able to consider yourself a man or woman of integrity in God's eyes when it comes to his promises? And when I'm saying integrity, I mean that sense of being undivided, of being steadfast. Now, God hasn't promised to make a nation out of you or me like he did Abram, but he certainly has given us, his people, many promises in his word. Promises like Luke 12, 24, Consider the ravens, they neither sow nor reap, they have neither storehouse nor barn, and yet God feeds them. Of how much more value are you than the bird? That's God's promise to provide. So how is your integrity in a promise like that? Do you trust that God will provide for you? Or do you show a lack of integrity by cheating on your taxes, by pocketing some unnoticed money at work, by letting greed sink its teeth into you? Actions like that are actually showing that we aren't trusting in God's promise to provide. It's a sign of a fault line in our integrity. Or how about God's promise in John fourteen twenty seven? Peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. Do you trust in God's promise of peace and protection? Or do you allow yourself to be overcome by worry and anxiety? Do you seek peace and comfort from other sources rather than God? Numbing the anxiety through alcohol or food, distracting your mind with Social media or TV, those are signs that maybe you aren't trusting in God's promise of peace. 
And those are just two examples. We could, the list could go on and on of promises that God gives us in Scripture. And those are things that we need to ask ourselves and rate. How is my integrity when it comes to these promises of God? Do, is my life showing and proving that I trust Him to be faithful in those things? Or do I flip-flop and waffle back and forth on these? Integrity is shown and how we live in response to God's promises. And here Abram shows us an example of how to stand firm on these promises, even when the world seems to be handing you a gift. Then he makes the right decision, because despite how circumstances may look, God has a plan, he has given us his word, and he will come through on that word. And this mysterious Melchizedek is a reminder of that. 2,000 years before Jesus ever came to earth, God gives a preview through this mysterious king of the kind of savior and priest the Messiah would be. A priest not based on lineage, but on an indestructible life. And the promise of God comes to be fulfilled when Christ rose from the grave, ascended to heaven, and sat victorious at the right hand of God. Promise fulfilled. And the effects of that fulfillment are still felt today, because that's where Jesus still reigns right now at this very moment, being an intercessor for us, his people, before God the Father. And it's all because God is faithful. Would you pray with me?